0: It is such a vile thing, a violent thing, that that's why the sentence thing, if you are convicted of mutiny, is death. So what he's saying is, like you said, here these men are refusing to get into the truck because of the weather. Refusing to get in the truck constitutes mutiny. No, I don't think so.
1: Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gray. In honor of the 80th anniversary of the completion of the Alaska-Canada Highway, we talk with author Christine McClure, who, with her late husband Dennis, wrote two books about the construction of the Alcan. The first, We Fought the Road, was a more general history of the three Black regiments that were instrumental in the building of that 1,600-mile road in just eight months. Today, we explore their second book, A Different Race, which tells a very specific story The winter of 1943 was historically cold in interior Alaska. Soldiers of the 97th Regiment were not provided with proper clothing, and when a group of them were ordered into the back of a truck for a 130-mile trip to Fairbanks when it was 34 degrees below zero, they refused. They were court-martialed and brought up on charges of mutiny, a crime punishable by death. Nine of the ten soldiers were found guilty." Christine McClure, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's so great to have you back again um, as we are on the cusp of celebrating the 80th anniversary of the quote completion of the Alcan Highway. Um, Of course, you know as well as I do that uh, exactly 80 years ago when they quote completed it, it was actually not a passable road. Correct um, for most vehicles. <laughs> yes, yes. And and I guess like to get started for people who may not have listened to our first interview, can you tell us a little bit about you and your husband Dennis's first book on the Alcan called "We Fought the Road" and how that book came about?
0: I found my father's letters and pictures and realized that he was building the Alaska Highway and that he was also a member of the 93rd Black Engineer Troops. So my husband and I decided to make a trip to Alaska and essentially look for where he, where uh, his regiment and where he moved and location. And as we traveled the Alaska Highway, we soon learned that there were um, three black regiments and the story about those black regiments had not been told. So the first book is about my father's 93rd Black Regiment and the new book. Right. And
1: just to be clear, to be clear, your yes. father was actually not black. He was white. Correct. He was. explain he a little was, bit about how that worked.
0: He was a white officer, and he was a regimental transportation officer of the 93rd Regiment. And usually these black regiments, you had 1,200 black soldiers, and then you had mixed in with that about 30, 40 white uh, officers and non-commissioned officers.
1: Right. Right. And so, you you know, just for our listeners, We Fought the Mm -hmm. Road is a wonderful book. It's very, very informative and interesting and um, important. But uh, the new book or, you know, the relatively newer book that we're talking about today is a different race. And can you talk about how that book came about, how you knew that there was a second book, you know, through your research on We Fought the Road?
0: When we went up to the highway to do marketing with, we fought the road. We decided to go to Valdez and uh, give a presentation at the library there. And the more people we talked to, and kept telling us that there were soldiers that were in chains in the stockade, and a a court Mm -hmm. uh, session, court martial occurred where they charged them for mutiny. And we we had a difficult time finding information about that. And so we knew that was going to be a good book. And we got the 400-page uh, court-martial transcript from St. Louis, and it proved yes. And we started with searching for the 10 men, but that was that's how we got that information. Everybody was saying yes, they had these 10 men. Matter of fact, sometimes it was 15 or 20, but that that were court-martialed for mutiny. And Dennis and I couldn't understand that because this was a project. This wasn't combat. So I have... Right. Okay.
1: Well, I want to talk about the details of that case, which you illustrate very well, in the second half of the book. Uh, The first half of the book is really about um, the 97th Regiment, uh, you know, their assignment On the Alcan. And so, can you talk a little bit about what the 97th Regiment was tasked with?
0: The 97th Regiment was the only black regiment that did not have a white engineering regiment either ahead of them or following them. And so, they were given the task to go into Valdez and get across Thompson Pass. All the way to Golkana and then follow the Abercrombie tra- Trail to what is known today as Toke. But mm-hmm. behind the scenes, Sturdevant and his generals said, We can't let the blacks uh, intermingle with the civilians, let alone the First Nations in that area. So they sent um, a public road administration, Lytle and Green, which are civilian contractors, and it took them a very long time to get organized, and they finally arrived at Valdez Dock in July. The black Mm -hmm. soldiers were already building the road because they arrived in April. But the point being, the black soldiers were supposed to be following Lytle and Green. That did not happen. Lytle and Green instead followed them. And Lytle and Green went all the way up the Richardson Highway to Delta and Mm -hmm. started their road process. And then some of the civilians also from Goetana, because that's where their main base was, followed the 97th over Mentasta Pass to Tok. So uh, someone, my husband and I said, well, why in the world would they even send black troops up there to make the road? Because that was, as you mentioned, it was a waste of time to even make a road from
1: Goetana to Toke. It was right. Well, to I want to talk about out that. Of the way. So, yes. people who are listening, who are in Alaska, we know yes. that there is a the, the main highway, the Richardson Highway, runs from Valdez to Delta Junction and then on to Fairbanks. But correct. What and so what was happening? That just seems so absurd, and is such a, a frustrating part of the book is that you know the ninety seventh Regiment, because the leadership and the army wanted to keep the black troops separate from from white civilians, they wanted this really incredibly difficult road built between Gokana and Tok through Slana. And it is, um, you know, I think you'll talk, I mean, if you could talk a little bit about this, I mean, these guys didn't know how to build a road when they arrived in Alaska. You know, a lot of them had minimal training and these skills. So they were being asked to do this you know in the most difficult of conditions in a place that they'd never been before and not following the main highway that 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 made the most sense correct
0: correct because that right. the Alaska highway from Whitehorse north towards Delta was being mm-hmm. built by the 18th regiment mm-hmm. and um then the civilians started from Delta south towards toward toward White yes, mm-hmm. so that portion of the road had not been built, but yes the ninety seventh started building road from slana there was a there was mm-hmm. was a path from Golcana to Slana, but from Slana all the way to Toke was essentially they had to find Abercrombie's trail, which is you know nineteen hundred that happened. So that was very, very difficult. And and once they attacked the sand hills around Slanta River, and when you drive this, you can see the sand, and they had to drive their bulldozers over the sand, and instead of going forward, the bulldozers moved sideways, and sometimes Mm -hmm. the track would fall off, and then they would have to put the track back on. But the most difficult part was over the moraine of that glacier. And mm-hmm. uh, and to uh, Clearwater Creek, all the way through to there. But that was a very difficult portion of the road. Carol Neely uh, is the daughter of just a, a China's Roadhouse, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Neely, who owned that. And he made the comment that it was just pure, and pardon my French, pure hell for these black soldiers to make this road the Tope Cutoff Road, which everybody knows right. as today. So he he remembered and told her story of the Blacks that were making this road.
1: In that context of knowing that the 97th Regiment, those troops had become quite skilled at what they were doing, and then you had these contractors falling in behind, and a lot of them were, like you said, recently hired um maybe they had experience with roads but maybe not building them in this particular part of the world and um and I want to talk about just compare their their pay
0: the privates were paid 21 dollars a month and of course officers were paid more but mm-hmm. most of the contractors uh, mm-hmm. the truckers were getting 25 to 30 dollars a ton for a 200-mile haul, and drivers were getting 400 to $700 a month. That's a lot of money in 1942. Yeah. Oh, my and
1: God.
0: Cafe, a cafe yeah. worker makes more than um, the privates. So right. all these people were making all this money, and uh, which the government was paying for.
1: Our government was right. paying for Right. There's thousands of troops here. And there's, there's thousands of contractors. There's a lot of people working on the road and people got sick and some people died. And I, I, there was a, on page 73, you talked about, um, a black soldier who was sick and got, you know, sent to Valdez, but ultimately didn't make it. And, um, his captain, uh,
0: He he never made it. He never made it on the road. He never lifted a shovel. His name was Major Banks, and he mm -hmm. was from Virginia. And during that Mm -hmm. time, all of the soldiers were given the yellow fever shot, but many times the medical people didn't change the needles, and there was what uh, also the the vaccine was contaminated, and a lot of soldiers Mm -hmm. suffered Mm -hmm. from a a serum hepatitis. Well, Mm Banks got the serum hepatitis. He died from liver failure. And when mm-hmm. Parsons, Captain Parsons, a white officer, after serving time down in Seattle, getting all the equipment up there to Valdez, mm-hmm. he was charged by Colonel Whipple, please take care of this soldier who just passed mm-hmm. away. So got that's that. when, when he was, uh, they got a coffin and he did all the, you know, the military protocol for uh, death. The
1: citizens of Valdez Absolutely. objected. Yes, they did. They did not want a black man in their no. c- in their cemetery. And there yeah, are Yeah, so going, you're going to explain what was the problem. How did they solve the problem of Valdez refusing to allow they a mo- black man They to be buried moved in cemetery. the area
0: across a river on the other side, mm-hmm. and there were four lots. And he was mm-hmm. buried. Uh, Major Banks was buried in one of those lots, so...
1: Yeah, I just yeah. found that interesting because I, I don't think people – I don't know if people of Valdez realize that they refused to have a black soldier buried in their cemetery. So you mentioned it that the mm-hmm. 97th Regiment really were heroes because the uh, 18th had got hung up at the river and couldn't, you know, do their portion. And so the 97th had to pick up the pace and construct a lot of extra road to actually meet up. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, towards the end of October, uh, the bulldozers met each other. And then there, you know, from the administrator standpoint, they had, quote, completed the road.
0: Yes. But they hadn't really. <laughs>
1: yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Um. See, how can I lead into this? Uh, the 18th got stuck at the White River. They couldn't mm-hmm. move their equipment. Um, they sent uh, Colonel Bridges and a small group of men to go, to go across the permafrost. So everybody was praying for cold mm-hmm. weather so they could drive their mm-hmm. equipment, and they met the 97th up there. The 97th had already gotten to their end at the border. And all of a sudden, they were told, now you have to help the White Regiment, the 18th Regiment, so you can connect the road. So they had to build 55 more miles down to the 18th Regiment. So because of that, and Colonel Robinson, who was now the commander mm-hmm. of the 97th, was promised that the 18th would provide Quonset huts and winter quarters for the 97th. That didn't mm-hmm. happen. So, mm-hmm. all these soldiers and I need along the, the road from um, Beaver Creek and up north, North Way to the uh, Toke area and then all the way up, halfway up to Fairbanks, they had uh, spread this regiment out. And these people, these soldiers, had some had to live in tents.
1: And I also just want to mention for our listeners that the the this was coming on November 1942. Yes. And the yes. winter between 1940 the winter of 1942-1943 is a historically cold winter. There were multiple yes. low temperature records set, uh, you know, minus mm-hmm. 60 degrees below zero, you know, minus 70. Like it was very, yes. very cold. Yes. And these guys were sleeping in tents and they did not have winter weather clothes.
0: Oh, no. No. They had to share parkas. They had to share their um, sleeping bags. They, of course, they had wood stoves inside these uh, barracks buildings that were just made of wood. They didn't have any black sheathing uh, or, or the roofing wasn't fixed or anything like that. It was so cold that the officers moved from their tents down to uh, a supply ca- uh Area. Root cellar. Root cellar, thank you very much. Yeah. And in there, because, and it was still cold, but none of them had the clothing at all. And Mary Hampton, who owned a roadhouse uh, along Mm -hmm. that stretch of the road, and her husband, they made some gift packs of toothpaste and uh, Mm -hmm. food and things like that. And when she brought these, when she and her husband brought these to the men, she noticed that the clothing. Yes. Mm she noticed that the, th- their clothing had holes in it she saw bare skin and she mm. and so they tried to help these soldiers that were around uh delta and they were intense so this is the
1: worst weather ever for these men right i guess i think what i want our listeners to understand mm-hmm. is just the the way the military actually taught white soldiers to think about african americans and there's a couple of parts in the book. Oh, you know what's a okay. really good one? And we didn't talk about this in advance, but on page 151, on page okay. 151, you have, there, there's a book called The Employment of Negro Troops by yes. Julius, U- Ulysses Lee. And this yes. was taught to officers at U.S. Yes. Army War College. Yes. Um, and can you read that paragraph about yes. that, that's from that manual?
0: It says as an individual the negro is docile, tractable, light-hearted, carefree and good-natured. If unjustly treated he is likely to become surly and stubborn, though this is usually a temporary phase. He is careless, shiftless, irresponsible and secretive. He resents censure and is best handled with praise and by ridicule. He is unmoral Untruthful and his sense of right doing is relatively inferior. Crimes and convictions involving moral turpitude are nearly five to one as compared to convictions of whites or similar charges.
1: There were real consequences to that, where you talked about in Europe how 83% of the men executed in Europe. Uh, in North Africa and the Mediterranean theaters of operation were African Americans, even though only 8.5% of the army was black. So, you know. The, yeah, the that was teaching, court martial, the court martial executions. Yeah, the yes. court martial executions. Yes. 83% of court martial executions yes. were of black men, even yes. though they were a small minority of the actual army. Which I, and so I, I that is foreshadowing for what we're about to learn about, which is yeah. the court the, the the mutiny case against ten of these black soldiers in the um ninety seventh regiment. So yeah. can you talk about? Well, and, and, and so we we we've laid the foundation. It is one of the coldest winters on record. They have poor clothes. They're having to sleep in tents. So I guess they have new command. They have new officers in charge who are not familiar with the culture of this unit. And I guess, what happened? Uh,
0: Captain Howell was now in charge of the H&S company, and they were located at Biggersville River. They asked for help, a detachment of soldiers. So Captain Parsons let him have Sergeant Hurd and his ten guys, or nine guys, Mm -hmm. excuse me. So they got in a truck and they traveled all the way to Big Gersel and they started working for the uh, development of a regional supply office in Fairbanks. So on March 29th, the temperature outside was 34 degrees below zero. And uh, these soldiers were now loading. Which, by the way, was a record
1: low temperature. A record low temperature. A record low
0: temperature. Delta also had a record temperature during that time, and we verified this with, uh, climatology experts in Alaska, that the whole Tanana Valley had the coldest winter, uh, mm-hmm. that year. So these soldiers were there, the job was to load four deuce and a half trucks. Uh, the, there were a couple cooks that were supposed to go with them. And with the supplies necessary to travel to Fairbanks, 130 miles away, to set up a regional or regimental supply office. So Captain Howell is now the head of H&S Company. And enter Sergeant Robert Lyon, who is a young officer, hasn't been in the Army very long. And Howell put him in charge of getting this group together and getting this job done. Mm-hmm. So as these men are working to load these trucks, they notice the condition of the trucks. Most of them, I think, one of them had a cover. Most of them had tattered covers. There was snow and ice on the bottom mm-hmm. uh, and uh, back of the trucks, and things were being loaded. And the cooks are going to be riding in the uh, heated portion up in the seats of the truck, and so is uh, Lyons. So. As they are doing this, the temperature is 34 degrees below zero. There is a first sergeant named uh, Noel Williams uh, who tells these men, "You're nuts to get in, to go on this trip." And their clothes did not allow them to be yeah. uh, prepared to travel 130 miles, even at right. 20, I- 30 miles an hour. The, the chill factor would kill them.
1: I know, and I want to point that out. That on page, uh, we skipped over that. I I told you I wanted to mention it on page 129. There was that was with uh, Bradford Washburn, the inspector who went to Alaska to inspect the 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 clothing of the soldiers in the field. And I think just reading his report um, would actually. be useful if you want to just read the quote or explain who he was and why he was there and what his report was about.
0: The Army hired him. He was a mountain climber, an expert in cold weather gear. And they hired him to evaluate the clothing and the gear on the 97th because they kept getting uh, complaints. So here here is what he did in January 1943. A thorough survey was made of clothing and equipment of the 97th engineers between Fairbanks and Northway. Temps down to 63 degrees below zero were encountered in the field, and clothing of this unit was found to be in abominable conditions, so much so that the specimens of it were brought to Washington, D.C. to illustrate the extremes under which the American troops are operating in the field when their supply has uh, been neglected. And even, uh, what was it, he said that they're just, Hibernating, living hibernation.
1: Yeah, because, because they can't leave. They
0: can't leave their tent. No. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. That, so that. I like that. So the, they have these kinds of clothes, and this new lieutenant is saying, "You guys are going to ride in the back of this truck,
0: this, yes,
1: uh, you know, unheated truck for 139 miles." Or however many yes. miles it was, it was a long, it was a long way. They were going to be in the 130 back One hundred thirty miles, yes, and that's all
0: yeah. that Sergeant Hurd and his group knew about this trip. So Hurd right. was very concerned about his men. I mean, he he's their boss, if you will. So he goes right. into the into the office of Howell and and literally asks him, can we get a better conveyance? Can we get a better truck that has a cover?" Mm-hmm. Uh, for that and um uh, he said no and said some nasty little comments you know in other words you got to put your big boy pants on let's get in the truck and get this done so many the men and especially pri- private uh, Sims Bridges I'm not going I don't want to go I don't want to die because they knew right. what would happen and so um, it was a series of events where Hal had called the men into the orderly room and asked each one, uh, are they going to go? Some said yes, some said no. And then the uh, the men went outside, milled around. I don't know, this is not a good idea. Then all of a sudden, Hal goes outside, looks at his watch, says, I'll give you 10 seconds to get in the truck or get behind me and get in the truck.
1: But you know what? I, I, I'm just going to interrupt because First Sergeant Williams yes. had... A, a, who is a black man? Told them not yes. to get in the back of that truck. So yeah, there was kind part- of this. Uh, he was the first sergeant. I mean, he's super yeah. important. He, yes. For people yes, who don't yes. understand, you, in the military, you do what your first sergeant tells you.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And Williams is is has been with H and S Company for a very very long time, and How was just the new commander, and he did not mm-hmm. know him very well. So, but that he warned, warned these 10 men that there was a ruling made by Whitehorse that you are not supposed to work or go outside and if the temperature is
1: uh, below, below zero. Yeah. Can we go to page 159? That first full paragraph that starts with Hurd and his soldiers, I think that's an important paragraph to kind of understand. I mean, these are African-American men raised in the South in the 20s and 30s. Yes. You know, that there's a culture, like what they're doing is, um, you know, they, they really are concerned for their lives.
0: So Heard and his soldiers had understood the childhood that black men don't argue with whiteness. The army had trained them that enlisted black soldiers don't argue with white officers, even white officers barely out of their knee pants. But disaster loomed in the back of that noose and a half. Experience had trained them not to just lie down in the path of disaster.
1: Right. So, I mean, they know that they are doing something astronomically outside of the expected behavior.
0: Well, they also know because they took a truck from um, Northway to Delta and it was warmer during that time. They were very Mm -hmm. familiar how long that trip was and they were in the back of a deuce and a half and it was cold. Mm -hmm. So what is going to happen when they get in those trucks and go 130 miles to Fairbanks? at minus 34 degrees. Even if you go at five right. miles an hour, the kill factor is just going to kill you. It will.
1: Right. Right. Okay. So, um, so he comes outside. You just, yes. uh, uh, you, yeah, he comes outside and says they have 10 seconds to get in the back of the truck.
0: Yes. And Hal is paying attention to his watch and he doesn't see some of the movement of the men. And he, he counts out the 10 seconds and then he starts heading toward. uh uh Major Doyle, uh, who had was taking the place or was in charge of the H&S company at this time, and complained to him that they were not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But what he didn't realize that four of the men had climbed in the back of the truck at that right. time. Right. So, and then he comes back. He tells Williams, get these men off the truck and put them in the barracks.
1: Under um arrest
0: and he naturally because he wants
1: to make an example I think I think we we kind of forgot to say that that the new leadership that came in was they 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 were looking for a way to set an example to kind of reinforce discipline within mm-hmm. that within that regiment to say like this is what happens if you don't follow the correct protocol when Howell comes out to talk to them and delivers his little speech yeah. um he 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 calls it mutiny, and I think yeah. that's the thing that's so yeah. Like this wasn't you know, the, 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 these guys are refusing to obey the, an order to get into the back of a pickup truck, or essentially uh, a, a bigger truck, I guess. And, and 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 he makes it clear that they're committing mutiny, and that mutineers are put to death. It is so
0: ludicrous because. Mutiny is when someone disobeys an order, okay? And it is such a Mm -hmm. vile thing, a violent thing, that that's why the sentence thing, if you are convicted of mutiny, is death. So what he's saying is, like you said, here these men are refusing to get into the truck because of the weather. Refusing to get in the truck constitutes mutiny. No, I don't think so. It constitutes a
1: discipline problem, but not right. A- it's a dis it like yeah, and, and, and as I pointed out earlier, their first sergeant has told them not to do it. Right. So, um, but but I think you know really they're faced with an impossible dilemma: do they get in the back of the truck and freeze to death, or do mm-hmm. they not get in the back of the truck and and face the death sentence? I mean, face the death sentence from the from this from this lieutenant. Yes, this lieutenant <laughs> also,
0: when he came away from Jack Doyle and told Williams to get take him, get him off the truck. All of the men were in the truck by that time.
1: Right, they'd all gotten in. That's yes. true. So um, I guess yeah. So so we know what's happened. So so they yes. decided they're going to make a, 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 a an example of these men. So what happens to them? They they obviously they do not get driven to Fairbanks. Mm-mm. They are taken back their, they're, you know, as you described at the very beginning, you know, they end up in shackles. They get, they are Ultimately. taken to
0: Whitehorse and put in a stockade. And the stockade commander was very upset because all these men had all this horrible clothing on. And out of his stores, he had to clothe these men properly. Mm-hmm. But they, that's so basically, they like When were. they get
1: put in, when they get, yeah, when they get taken as prisoners, then they mm-hmm. finally get warmer clothing. Yes. Yes.
0: So to talk about the um, Mm court-martial is a very difficult topic because there's so many continuities or innuendos or hidden things and manipulations with this three-day trial. But the important thing that needs to be mentioned back then, uh, they had an attorney and then Captain Parsons Mm -hmm was chosen by the men to represent them in this trial. But court marshals right. during this time were used as an instrument of command. Mm-hmm. And O'Connor knew this. Um, Mitchum knew this. This is how they were going to get the black men into, uh, to behave, by using right. this and instrument of I I command. You-
1: you did a good job of explaining this in the book. And I think for our listeners who are mm-hmm. in the military now, who understand yes. how the military works now, this is prior to UCMJ. There yes. is not a legal yes. code. And, and, and really, the court-martial is to reinforce command. It is Absolutely. to reinforce Absolutely. discipline. Yes. It is not about getting justice. And I want to point out, you just said Captain Parsons would be their defense. Captain Parsons is not a lawyer. Captain no. Parsons is, is, is an engineer. He knows them. He he knows these guys, and yes. he 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 loves them, and he wants to help them.
0: Yes, yes.
1: But he doesn't know how. Oh, and they shut him down
0: several times d- during the questioning, and their stories change. And right, it's just it's, it would take us three hours. This. Is, to the, the,
1: I know. I know. So you know. And I have well, to. I have so what, to say
0: this. It yeah. was so difficult to write because this transcript of this court martial was 400 pages long.
1: Holy cow!
0: So what do you put in to describe how they minimalized or compartmentalized Captain Parsons? How they shut him down when he tried to introduce uh, proof, not only of the temperature and proof of the lack of equipment and proof of the lack of clothing. And this was a discipline problem, and supporting right. And they Howell kept
1: telling him that it was irrelevant. Event. They kept saying it was irrelevant. Exactly,
0: and then then beefing up Howell's testimony by the next day. Well, we were supposed to stop a couple times, or right. I told I them to wear their their mm-hmm. their uh, sleeping bags. Put their sleeping bags on in the back of the
1: truck. Really? When they were <laughs> never told to bring their sleeping bags to wear in the back of the truck. That,
0: yeah. Well, wow, no, you did hard, a good job. They Howell and Lyons made a list of the clothing they had, and many of them didn't even have a sleeping bag or a parka or <laughs> shoes. Right. You know, it's just right. ridiculous. But the the um uh, president of the group, Whitney, the the jury, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. they all knew that this is what O'Connor wanted as a Incident where command can be reinstituted, and they kept shutting Parsons down. Kept shutting Parsons down.
1: Right. So, but anyway, um, and and, and you know, and he he wrote about it. It was very moving. When yes. um, you know, I think he was writing to a friend about what his, you know, that he couldn't sleep because he was living and breathing this case, and he was doing everything he. That was could. his
0: wife, Abby. He wrote to his wife. Oh. Mm-hmm. He, he just couldn't. Unbelievable. And his ending speech, you know, they each have his mm-hmm. speech talking about these men and they depend on the white men. They don't have the education. They depend on us, you know, to help them through. These men are a different race. So that's the right. title of this book. But it also refers right. to the race. That these black men did the extra right. sixty-five miles to to close the highway, so it has a double meaning. But it was interesting right. that that Parson said these Parsons men brought it up. A up. He brought race. it up.
1: Yes, he did. He brought it up, and of course, he was told that that was completely irrelevant. Yes. and, that, that, oh. and you know, and so Star um Star is the the judge. Is that is yes? That like the correct term? Yeah. So I just want if you go to page two hundred three. If you could read that quote from the judge. Yeah, and he, he, he was described. the prosecutor. So, oh, the prosecutor, um,
0: yeah. Star Rose deliver closing arguments for the prosecution yeah. to begin the drama mm-hmm. to its climax. During yeah. the last three days, he pontificated the court, quote, has been trying men for a crime seldom known. Trying men for a deed most dastardly than that at Pearl Harbor, most dastardly because every man who participated in this crime is a citizen of our own country. Mutiny. Yeah. It's, it's,
1: yeah, and he he goes on. He says the crime which these men com- committed strikes at the very foundation of our government. Government. A crime yes. that can can be committed only by those. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's basically going. I mean, like he wants he wants Like he wants full court press these men just to, to be shot possible to be yeah. shot.
0: Yes. 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 It's amazing.
1: Um, I I guess, can we talk, uh, well, and you know, we haven't mentioned Willie Calhoun, but can you explain why Willie Calhoun was a particularly egregious, pers- egregious case of, of misjustice?
0: Uh, Lyons and Howell made a list of the men they said were in the orderly room that they had personally asked if they're going to travel on the t- uh, truck and that uh, all these men, 10 men, all refused. What's interesting Mm -hmm. is Willie Calhoun wasn't even there. He wasn't there. Yeah. He he heard Mm -hmm. it giving him him permission to go to personnel to get his pay allotment changed or something for his family. So he was over there. He didn't even – he wasn't involved in any of this. He wasn't even there. Right,
1: But he was on trial. Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. So –
1: um, and uh, that was the only real success for Parsons was he did get Willie Calhoun released yes. for not being present for yes. any of it. But, I mean, can we talk about what the sentences were?
0: Yes. What page is that on? Because the sentence after, the
1: court, after the court
0: reviewed everything, they were decreased. Mm-hmm. But the original sentences right. were, the court judged Calhoun not guilty. The other nine men, however, declared guilty. The court closed again mm-hmm. to consider sentences. When they returned, they threw the book at Hurd, sentenced him to be confined at hard labor for 20 years. They threw the mm-hmm. uh, book almost as hard at Sims Bridges, sentencing him to be confined at hard labor 18 years. They found Leigh Ratliff a bit less culpable and sentenced him to comp- hard labor for 12 years. Rucker yeah. and Willie Howell moved the, uh, toward the truck, so the sentencing was for five years, Hollingsworth, Wendy, excuse me, Weaver, and Lindy and Falks, uh had climbed into the truck. So their sentencing was three
1: years. So They got sentenced to three years hard labor, even though they complied with the order. Right. Yes.
0: Yes. Now, what happens with this is the c- case is reviewed, and I think uh, some of those sentences were decreased. But still, they went to what is called rehabilitation centers. <laughs> And the name really, right. rehabilitation centers is a misnomer because you're talking about uh, wire double wire fencing, dogs, guards, so forth and so on,
1: and jail right. cells. And, and I yes. want to point out, because there are you know, there was a lot of soldiers in World War Two and there yes. were some bad guys and there yes. were some criminals and the and so these guys were put in these rehabilitation centers with hardcore criminals. I mean it's and, just and and they
0: hope the army hoped by naming it rehabilitation center that some of these would re, be, re, be rehabilitated and sent back mm-hmm. into the military. Yeah, mm-hmm. they many. I read the histories. They moved them a lot between different camps, but right. there were many mm-hmm. people that escaped, and um, yeah, there were people that had uh, committed worse crimes than not getting mm-hmm. into a truck.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think um, to conclude, will you read your final paragraph from the chapter called Punishment? So on page 213. Yes.
0: Somebody had committed a crime. Either nine young soldiers at Bangorso, Alaska committed mutiny or the United States Army in Whitehorse, Yukon, perpetrated a gross miscarriage of justice. But honorable men, the young black soldiers and the army officers who punished them did their duty as they saw it. The perpetrator who committed the crime wasn't a person. The perpetrator was the invisible hand that ruled the lives of all the colored people in the entire South. The invisible hand came to the army with black soldiers. The army had fed 10 young soldiers into the system of military justice to set an example. Having made its point, the army returned them all to normal duty, but they returned to normal duty and ultimately they left the army to live their lives in a world still ruled by the invisible hand, regulated by the laws of Jim Crow, and I must say, the invisible hand I am quoting Isabel Wilkerson, uh, The Warmth mm-hmm. of Other Suns, and she talks about this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um it's a really important story that I think not enough people know about. I mean, it's just so egregious. The the injustice is so incredibly egregious.
0: No one knows the history of these ten right. men, ha- going through m- mutiny charges. I I cannot imagine being in the courtroom with all these white soldiers because none of the group, none of the panel
1: was black. They were all white. Exactly, and and, and saying out loud. Without a hint of irony, that what yes. they did was worse than Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, yes, yes,
0: making them feel as small as possible
1: with humiliation. <laughs> it's it's an, it's just insane. I um well, thank you so much to you. You're welcome. Um, and yeah, for 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 writing the book, and I want to ask you, Christine, can you um. Tell us how the new book is going. I know when we talked last time, you said that you were working on a book about nurses in World War II, and I just wanted to know if you've made any progress or have any updates for us.
0: Um, I'm halfway. <laughs> I got him, you know, to Bowman Field. I got him on the ship, USS Lions, and they're now heading uh, to Africa. They're 25 nurses, and it's uh, taken – a lot of time, as you know, writing is not as easy as television tells you to write a bestseller mm-hmm. or anything. It's just not easy with the research, but I'm still working on it. Hopefully I can get it uh, done within the
1: next year. Hopefully. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to it. And, um, you know, hopefully we can have you back on when your new book comes out. Big thanks to Corey Coolidge for making this podcast listenable. Please check out his website, AnchorageLife.net, and his YouTube channel, also called Anchorage Life. And thank you to you, our listeners. Next week, founder and editor of the Alaska Landmine blog and host of the Alaska Landmine podcast, Jeff Landfield. Please tune in.